Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My goal here is to look for the people in their given field that really excel, that uh, go well above and beyond just being licensed and credentialed. And they're looking for the geniuses. And today I have uh, Dr. Sandra Leibel. She's a neonatologist at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. She's also an assistant professor of pediatrics at UC San Diego School of Medicine. Uh, she was recruited from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, where she uh, did a graduate degree in lung biology as part of a physician scientist program. So her clinical interests, according to the bio, are invasive and non-invasive uh, ventilation and its effect on babies during uh, neonatal intensive care. Sandra, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, is this, uh, what's your current research? Uh, you're a physician scientist, which I like those combinations because they seem to be pretty rare. But what's your uh, current work about? Uh, yeah, I actually uh, like being a physician scientist because there's that nice bridge from the clinical bedside to the bench, but then also vice versa. So um, I really like having kind of one foot in each um, specialty. So currently um, I'm in the lab. So I'm uh, working really hard on this model that I created using induced pluripotent stem cells or embryonic stem cells and differentiating them into three-dimensional lung organoids. Oh, okay. Um, what, what section of the lung are you able to recreate with the organoid? Because you know, from my understanding, organoids, if they're, if they're lucky, they're usually you know, like a very small part of the functionality of the whole organ. Yeah, you're correct. Actually, the organoid fields obviously exploded recently, and um, there's been brain organoids and liver organoids. Many other uh, systems are actually way ahead of the lung field just because it's really difficult to make a lung. There's over 40 different cell types in the lung, including the epithelial cells, mesenchymal cells, which are kind of um, uh, the supportive cells. There's also immune cells. There's um, endothelial cells, which make all the blood vessels because the blood vessels and the um, kind of uh, breathing cells or the alveolar epithelial cells are in close contact with each other in order to uh, uh, participate in uh, the exchange of gases, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. So because of this complex nature of a lung, um, we're only able to make lung organoids that are made up of epithelial cells, which are the cells that function in many different ways. So just for an example, the lung <clears throat> is divided into the proximal part or the airways, and those are the lungs, or those are uh, the parts of the lung that house cells such as mucus secreting cells or cells with little hair tufts called cilia cells. And they kind of work as the first line of defense against anything that we breathe in. So any breath that we take is filled with viruses, bacteria, particles, 
And obviously, first it enters the nares, which is kind of the first line of defense, then goes down into the bronchioles, which then also tries to battle anything that's not purely just the oxygen and what we actually need to breathe. And then that air that descends into the distal part of the lung, and that's mainly made up of two epithelial cell types, which are called the alveolar type 1 and type 2 cells. And the type 1 cells are really flat and really small and are uh, uh, completely um, next to the uh, blood vessels, the capillaries of the lung. And they need that close um, distance to each other in order to exchange the carbon dioxide and the oxygen. And then the alveolar type 2 cells are also in the distal part of the lung. And their main function um, is to make... Uh, surfactant, which is a little soap that when it's secreted by the alveolar type 2 cells, its purpose is to maintain the lung in the open state. So then when we breathe out, then that lung does not collapse on us all the time. So the surfactant decreases what's called surface tension. And that surface tension, um, the higher the surface tension, the harder it is to um, keep that lung open. And so to decrease the surface tension, the type 2 alveolar cells uh, secrete surfactant. And, you know, I, well, I don't mean to make everything about uh, the coronavirus, but I guess uh, that, that's the particular type of cells supposedly perhaps that the, uh, the coronavirus uh, interferes with the surfactant production of, or is that just completely outside this conversation? Oh, no, no. This is definitely um, what you're saying is correct. And we're actually ramping up our lung organoid model for use in uh, this pandemic currently. So, um, we're collaborating with many infectious disease specialists at UCSD now to see whether it is a good model um, for uh, infecting, obviously, in a BSL-3 setting, um, which is, you know, a very high, uh, you're supposed to go in fully covered and fully protected um, in that setting to take a look at the molecular mechanism of, of infectivity, as well as a high throughput method of uh, trying to find therapeutics. So we are currently uh, doing those um, collaborations. And you're right that the coronavirus, and this has been the same. So the coronavirus is called SARS-CoV-2. And the previous uh, pandemic with uh, SARS-CoV-1, which occurred in 2002-2003, uh, they share a lot of things in common. And um, so, you know, the people who have been studying the previous coronavirus have allowed this um, time of pandemic uh, to actually move a lot faster because we already knew a lot uh, from the previous SARS-CoV-1. So with the SARS-CoV-2, we know that it requires the uh, receptor ACE2, which is an angiotensin-converting enzyme receptor. And those receptors are found in the alveolar uh, cells in the um, uh, distal lung. So you're correct about that. So what does the normal filtering and morphology of the lung tell you about the fact that for instance, like this virus gets to these cells, is that an unusual feat or is that to be expected? You know, a lot of really tiny particles would just get there anyway. Exactly. So it definitely depends on the size <clears throat> of the particle. And that's why viral infections are so easily transmissible. But because there's actually four coronavirus strains that are community acquired. So these are um, strains that we're probably exposed to every winter, our bodies recognize them, we're able to mount an appropriate immune response to them. And that's why you don't see, you know, this quick um, uh, passing on of the regular community coronaviruses. Um, this uh, COVID, uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, 
um, this is novel. So because, you know, it was a, uh, came from an animal and mutated, our bodies don't recognize this at all. So not only our first, um, uh, the, um, the nares and the upper lung, um, the first line of defense, they are unable to not only recognize it, but because of its size, they're unable to filter it out. And then the immune system should be coming in and we have an innate immune system which is kind of like the first line, recognize and then grab the T cells and the B cells to come and help battle and make antibodies against an infection. And what we're seeing is that um, if your immune system has never seen this virus before, then it definitely either overreacts or underreacts. And that's what actually may cause the length of an illness in an adult versus a child. And so that's why we're also seeing discrepancies in how this viral affects children versus adults. Mm. So what um, what is your organoid about? Are you just modeling an alveolus and, and its function in the breathing cycle, or like what specifically are you looking at? Yeah. Um, so because I was, I'm also a clinician. Uh, my research all came out of being at the bedside, and um, there's these surfactant genetic deficiencies that affect newborn babies. So the surfactant molecule is 90% lipids, 10% proteins, and the mutations are generalized within the protein composition part of the surfactant molecule. And so there's four surfactant proteins, A, B, C, and D, and B and C are the ones that actually help function in reducing the surface tension. And so if a baby is born with a surfactant protein B deficiency, it pretty much knocks out the gene and um, it doesn't make the protein. And therefore, the surfactant molecule is abnormal and can't function correctly. So those babies can't keep their lungs open. So when they're born, they're immediately put on breathing machines, and they can't come off of them until they get a lung transplant. So because I was at WashU as a fellow, um, we were a uh, lung transplant hospital. And so a lot of the babies um, from other hospitals or other places came to our unit. And so I was taking care of a lot of these babies as a fellow. And just trying to think there's got to be a better way to treat this disease than just lung transplant, because obviously that's not easy to come by. They're stuck on the ventilator for multiple months and, you know, they can die prematurely as well if they have a superimposed infection. So um, I was lucky enough to work in a uh, lab that studies um, all these different genes associated with surfactant with uh, Dr. Seshko and Dr. Aaron Hanvis. And at that time, um, in 2006, 2007, the discovery of creating induced pluripotent stem cells out of fibroblasts was discovered by Yamanaka et al. And obviously, he won the Nobel Prize for this discovery. And it's just completely changed the face of regenerative medicine, understanding development of different organ systems, because now we can actually use these iPSC cells um, obtained from an actual patient and their fibroblasts, so we don't have to actually go into the embryo and extract those. So um, using iPSCs, um, they actually can make the three germ layers of the embryo, which are the ectoderm, the endoderm, and the mesoderm. And those three layers make every single cell in our body. And so I use endoderm because endoderm then makes lung. Um, and so um, I, oh, go ahead. Is the protein, let's say protein B, um, is that person specific or if it was, you know, I'm envisioning this and who knows that this, this is just armchair speculation. Would you be able to entrain protein B or parts of it in an inhaler or in a breathing treatment where the baby would breathe it in? It would go be small enough to go down to that place in the alveoli 
and then either self-assemble or just be used to help create surfactant? Could you exogenously and you know take it in? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the good news is we already have something like that. So this was discovered by a neonatologist in the 50s. And so when a preterm baby is born, the reason they can't breathe on their own is because they don't have enough surfactant. Surfactant usually starts to appear in the lungs by around the second trimester. So if you're born at 24 weeks, it's too early, your surfactant really hasn't kicked in yet. And so when the scientists discovered that, then we actually can extract surfactant from pigs and cows, as well as now molecularly make it. And we actually give these uh, preterm baby surfactants. So when I'm on service as a neonatologist and a 24, 25-week baby is born, then we put a tube down their throat and we actually give them exogenous surfactant. And that's usually enough to get their lungs open and decrease that surface tension and allow them to then breathe as well as survive. So we do have that okay. capability already. How does, the, how does it come? Is it just the protein is just ready and assembled and you just got to get it to the right place? Or is there building blocks that you know, the local cells will then assemble into the protein? Um, so after delivery of the exogenous surfactant, that should activate the endogenous or within the lungs source of surfactant. It's kind of like a Kickstarter where it's like, hey, okay, you know, we need this um, to get ramped up now because we actually need surfactant. And we also know that steroids are another activator. And so when a mom comes in, a pregnant mom comes in and she's in preterm labor and we know that delivery may be imminent, we actually give mom two doses of steroids in order to then ramp up the, uh, in, the endogenous surfactant within the baby's lungs. Okay. So, so right now, what are you trying to figure out with your organoids? Maybe you've stated it. It just wasn't maybe clear enough to me. I'm sorry. If you would oh, just yeah. restate but, but tell me what you're working on. Absolutely. So because of the surfactant protein B deficiency in those babies, I've uh, biopsied one of their fibroblasts from their skin, and I've made iPSCs directly from uh, that baby who actually got a lung transplant and survived her disease. Um, and so then what I did is I made the lung organoids and confirmed that they had maintained that genetic deficiency. And the way that you test whether a baby has surfactant protein B is not only confirm the mutation, but also under the electron microscopy, you look at the lamellar bodies, and these are the storage vesicles for surfactant, and they are completely abnormal in surfactant protein B. And so then what I did um, when I was at SickKids is I made a lentivirus that was carrying the wild-type surfactant protein B gene. I infected the iPSCs that were deficient or knockout of surfactant protein B with the virus carrying the normal gene, and then I differentiated those into lung organoids, and I found that they completely normalized. I found the protein. It was being expressed by the organoids. I looked at the lamellar bodies, and they were completely normal. And then I also looked to see if they were secreting surfactant into the media, and they were. So in essence, the disease was cured in a dish. And now I want to, you know, in the future, take that and be able to cure the disease in the actual patient. So you, how did you uh, create this virus? Was it a modification of an existing one, or you know, how did you create it? Yeah, the lentiviral vector is um, commercially available. So you just buy the backbone, you buy the uh, gene um, sequence that you need, you assemble the virus in the lab, and then usually we tag it with a GFP reporter. And then that way, after we perform the infection, we can actually visualize which cells um, have been infected and pick the ones that are glowing green in order to then 
um, culture those, expand them, and then differentiate them into lung organoids. Well, it sounds like pretty routine when you describe it, but if you, if you wouldn't mind, how do you, so do you have the, you have the internal payload, you have the RNA, and how do you, how is the capsid of the, uh, the virus created? Is it spontaneously formed just because of the laws of physics? You have material in a dish that it informs it around it, or do you have to use a, a cell to create it? Like, how is it made? What Honestly, you know? the, the, um, the, um, commercial i don't know exactly which uh, company i bought it from but they create the virus for you you can just ask for specific i need a lentivirus with this gene in it tagged to this so they actually do the entire assembly um and then they just ship it to us and all we have to do is just grow it and infect so it makes life a lot easier yeah so all right so this virus that you uh that you're using it the virus itself will what it'll inject its uh its rna DNA into these particular cells and they'll become part of those cells uh, genetic code it'll endogenize into those cells and then make them normal yep exactly so it does in fact the actual uh, after infection in the cell it does incorporate itself within the DNA of the cell and that's what a lentivirus does um, there are also other viruses that do not do that that uh, some people have been utilizing like um, AAV is a type of virus that doesn't integrate itself into the backbone. There's also plasmids that people use that also don't integrate, but the lentivirus does. So that, the one that I've used, did integrate uh, within the uh, DNA of the iPSCs. Hmm. Okay. And um, yeah, that's really interesting. It's amazing. I, I guess everyone's talking about CRISPR-Cas9 all the time. And, you know, I forgot about uh, viral vectors, you know, to insert genes. Uh, or to your knowledge, uh, are viral vectors only able to insert genes or are they also able to splice and selectively insert at the right spots? Are they able to remove material or is it just it goes in and doesn't come out? Great question. Um, the problem with these viral vectors, exactly how you uh, already stated it, is that we have no idea where they're integrating because it's so random. You just add them to the dish and they'll integrate wherever they want to integrate. And you just cross your fingers and they integrate in a site that's actually not important for, you know, cellular growth and maintenance and health. Um, So that's why when you mentioned CRISPR-Cas9, it is a much more targeted process and a lot better, except it's just less efficient. So we use the lentivirus vector because we knew that we could get infectivity pretty quickly and move on with our experiments at a faster rate. But I think if we're going to actually use this clinically, lentivirus is probably not the way to go and CRISPR-Cas9 is. And one of the um, uh, investigators within this lung organoid world, Daryl Cotton, actually did uh, already use CRISPR-Cas9 on surfactant protein B deficient cells and did fix the mutation and was nice enough to share his uh, uh, corrected cells with me. So I do have those growing and uh, kind of studying. If you were able to just, you know, skip all the remaining steps and go into the clinic, you know, not that you would do this, of course, but if you were able to do this and, you know, what does this look like at the clinical stage? You have a baby, you're fishing this protein, you walk in, you give the therapy, what does it look like and how does it work? If we skip all the steps and go right to the end where it's working, what would that look like? Oh, my dream is to be able to quickly and efficiently buy, if we know the um, diagnosis when the baby is still in utero, then we can actually take out amniocytes, which are cells within uh, the amniotic fluid and take those, make iPSCs, make lungs or lung organoids, and then extract the type 2 cells. So when the baby's born, we can actually add them back into the baby 
without any immunosuppressive therapy because it's their own cells. Um, And then that way they will have their own cells put into their trachea and then engraft into their own lungs and then, you know, start producing surfactant because that mutation has been taken care of. Now, if we didn't know the diagnosis, if it was surprised, if it was a surprise diagnosis after birth, obviously, you know, we don't have as much time because the differentiation takes about six weeks currently. Um, So if there's a way to speed up the procedure of um, taking fibroblast or white cells, we can also um, make uh, iPSCs out of white blood cells. If we can either skip the whole iPSC step and just make fibroblasts straight into lung organoids, that will be a lot more efficient and a lot faster. Um, but currently, we do have to go through the iPSCs, and um, but that would be the dream in order to then give back uh, the patient's own cells, but in another form, in another cellular form, have them engraft in their lung and cure the disease like that. Oh, but would there be a way to... Um again, quickly uh, alter the existing cells that are there without having to have new, com- new cells come in, differentiate, and take their place? Yes, exactly. Um, I don't think you would ever be able to fix the mutation itself in those cells that are mutated, although there are some investigators that are actually uh, currently using on, uh, the AAV virus and putting it together with the CRISPR-Cas9 system and seeing if they could correct mutations just by putting the virus with the CRISPR-Cas9 system in the lungs of animals to see if that itself can correct the mutations that are present um, within different disease models like cystic fibrosis. Uh, No one's really looking at surfactant protein B right now because it's a very rare disease, but something more common like cystic fibrosis would be great um, to use as a model for a viral vector with a, a gene therapy to correct the patient's own cells. Well, I mean, if viruses can target specific cell types, you know, in vivo, like in people, if they get, let's say, you know, SARS-CoV-2, why couldn't, uh, if you found the right virus, they couldn't do the same and be selective, but maybe they would cause an immune response at the same point and kind of corrupt the process. I don't know. Yes, exactly. So you need a virus that will not set the immune system off and make the patient sick. And that's why, you know, gene therapy has just been marching along fairly slowly because obviously safety first. And we want to make sure that these viruses are safe and um, not harming the patient when in actuality we're trying to help the patient. So um, that's why there's a lot of different ways we're looking at this, you know, treatment of patients with their own cells uh, in order to um, fix their genetic mutations. Yeah, that's interesting. Is there, um, do you, have you observed or do you know if there's a microbiome in and around the alveoli? And if so, could that be altered in such a way as to help this process? Yeah, great question. Uh, We definitely know there is a microbiome in the lung. Uh, The only problem with um, really teasing out microbiome in different niches of the lung, whether it's the proximal or the distal cells, is the fact that the lung is a closed system and we can't really get into it in a person. That's why this has been such a hard field to make organoids out of. Um, we can't really biopsy lungs in order to, you know, kind of evaluate how they function and what the microbial um, environment is. The only way we can really study uh, the microbiome of the lung is if we suction the secretions either out of an endotracheal tube or sputum if someone spits um, into something, but that will only capture really the microbiome of the upper lung. 
and may not actually translate into what's going on in the really distal lung. It's really hard to get samples from a distal specimen. Well, what about if someone, um, you know, has a lung transplant or is, uh, you know, are you able, I mean, I guess it would be dysbiotic, but are you able to see at least what's in and around the alveoli at that point? Uh, yeah, but I agree that it'll, those lungs are, if you need a lung transplant, your lungs are completely, you know, um, they've been not only altered by whatever process ca- is causing you to get a lung transplant, but if you need a lung transplant, you're on the ventilator. And if you're on the ventilator long-term, there's different type of bacterias that just really love the ventilator environment, and then they will actually co-localize and um, take, you know, take hold of uh, the microbiota of the lung and probably overpopulate whatever native species is there. And we can't, then we can't for sure say that, oh, this was the native species of uh, my, microbiota in the peripheral or the distal lung uh, because, again, the patients are on the vent for so long that um, it's very difficult to tease out which bacteria belongs there and which one is just an invader. But what if um, an animal or a person passes away for other reasons? Why not, um, you know, right at the time of death that they have agreed or if it's an animal, you know, if the protocol calls for it, that you don't do an immediate sampling and look and see what's there? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great idea. I know I've been to a couple of uh, talks about the microbiome in the lung and, you know, the leaders of the field, I'm in no way a part of that field at all, but obviously it's very interesting, but they're still trying to figure out um, on, in the lung and, or sorry, in the animal model of the lung to figure out exactly what is supposed to be there. Cause the way they do it is um, looking at the RNA of uh, the actual viruses themselves. And um, they're still kind of working out how best to truly say this is a positive um, bacteria that belongs there to make um, the lung healthy versus, you know, is this a contamination or through the process of extracting the lung, was this lung exposed to a different bacterial population? So um, from the you know, minimal knowledge I have of the microbiome in the lung, they're still processing the best ways to analyze the data that they are getting from their animal models. But currently, and then I know in humans, um, everything in the human uh, microbiome is definitely all upper airway. Oh, you mean uh, there, there is none in the lower airway or the upper they just airway? Can't, is, okay, yeah, they just can't sample it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's got a couple of interesting things about it in the alveoli. It could, there could be aerobic bacteria there because there's gas exchange. Um, I guess they'd have to be limited to a certain size in order to even get there. So I wonder if any of those clues would would tell people about what's even possible down there or what's not. Absolutely. And what's interesting too is we all know about the gut microbiome, but there's actually a connection between the lung and the gut as well. So there's some people that are actually studying the health of the gut microbiome and how that translates into lung health. So that's another whole... um, interesting piece of the lung research that's occurring with the microbiome. Because um, the alveoli, I guess, are the sites of gas exchange, does the pH change a lot, you know, as you go through the breathing cycle? Because you have, you know, more oxygen than more carbon dioxide. Are there any conditions on the alveoli that are really unique? Maybe that? I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. As a neonatologist, that's all I do is I get blood gases all the time and I have to Um, interpret them. And obviously, if the baby is on a ventilator, I have to adjust the ventilator. Um, So yeah, no, definitely, there are lots of uh, different ways to change the acid-base balance 
within the bloodstream. And that's usually due to an increased level of carbon dioxide that either the patient or the baby just can't breathe out. And so it stays in the bloodstream. Yeah, I'm just imagining also the, the temperature as well in there would maybe that would change drastically when you breathe in it's probably cooler and then when you breathe out it's it's warmer and the ph and i guess there's a lot of cycling that probably happens in the alveoli and in the walls absolutely yep all if anyone's on a ventilator the actual air that's being pumped into the lungs has to be warmed and it has to be humidified because that's another thing if we put in unhumidified air into the lung it dries it out and that's a nidus for bacteria to come in. They like warm, moist environments, but they also um, can take hold in a dry environment because that can result in cell death and uh, you know an opening for viruses or bacteria to enter. When people are being ventilated and babies are being ventilated, do they entrain anything into the airstream? They say they make it more humid. I would hope that they filter the heck out of it before it goes in there. Um, do they continuously like analyze what's coming out, what's going in? Do they entrain any drugs in it or any other substances? Yeah. So the ventilator is, an, you know, it's a great piece of equipment and it definitely saves lives uh, because it helps the patients. Um, and it's, can, it can be used for patients that can breathe on their own or that can't breathe on their own. Um, and so it's what it actually uh, gives to the patients is pretty much just oxygen um, so it depends on what your um, uh, oxygen saturations are. And we can detect that on pulse oxes that are just on the fingers or the hands. And then um, we can increase the amount of oxygen we give to the patient. And then the, another thing that we can change on the ventilator is the amount of pressure that we're giving. So if we have to keep, it's kind of like when you start blowing a balloon, that initial blow to get that balloon open, that initial pressure, that's kind of like the surface tension in the lung. And once you overcome that initial hardship of getting that balloon open from a small to kind of a medium state, then it's a lot easier to blow that balloon up to its full capacity. And it's the same with the lung. So if a lung is prone to collapse because it's really sick or it doesn't have surfactant, and this happens in adults as well, that if you, know, you undergo a trauma like a car accident or if you have a severe pulmonary infection, then your surfactant stores can actually be depleted very quickly and you need to be on the ventilator because your lungs can't be maintained in the open state. And so we can adjust the amount of pressure to give through the ventilator to the lungs to keep them open while they heal and then get the patient off the ventilator once their lungs are healed and their surfactant is back in commission. And are, are uh, people breathing pure oxygen or are they trying to emulate the actual mixture in normal air? We try and emulate the natural mixture. So we definitely always try what we're breathing right now in room air is 21% oxygen. And so in a patient who just needs the pressure to keep their lungs open, but the gas exchange is intact, they usually only need 21%. So that tells me their lung health is actually pretty good. They just need to get their surfactant stores back up so they could keep their lungs open by themselves. But there are some patients that um, their um, uh, alveolar type 1 cells have been uh, injured and therefore they can't exchange gas as well. And therefore we have to provide them with supplemental oxygen. And that can go all the way up to 100% if we need to. And then what happens to you know babies or older people once they're on a ventilator for a period of time? And what kind of changes do you observe? Yeah, great question. So it really depends on how long they're on the ventilator for. The faster, the better. The shorter, the better. Um, if they just need to be on a later for ventilator for just a couple of days, then we actually don't see any 
um, kind of long-term morbidities or um, other diseases associated with being on short-term ventilators. But in uh, preterm babies specifically, because some are born with just the inability to keep their lungs open, they may be on the ventilator for, you know, two, four weeks. And that definitely puts them at risk for this premature uh, lung disease called a chronic lung disease or bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And that's a lifelong disease. So knowing this, we really try and get babies off the ventilator as soon as possible, as soon as we know they can keep their lungs open by themselves. Mm, okay. Well, very good. Um, you know, I've kind of already asked you what the, the end goal would be. So we have that. Um, what, where are you in all of this? Do you, do you feel like um, it's going to be soon where there's a breakthrough or there's, uh, you know, clinical trials or is it years away? Uh, the IPSC-derived lung organoids, definitely years away. I know that there have been some IPSC um, studies use, they're making uh, retinal cells in the eye. I know they've done that and they've done clinical trials with those. So I'm thinking that, you know, for regenerative medicine, this I am, you know, induced peripotent stem cell derived organ systems is definitely the future. Uh, from the lung standpoint, um, we still have to figure out how to make them a little bit more mature. So my lung organoids are definitely more a baby lung than they are an adult lung. Um, so we still have to figure out how to maturize them. And then another thing we have to figure out is when we do finally give them back to the patient and put them down the breathing tube or the trachea, can they actually engraft and then, you know, fix the population of sick cells, uh, within the lung and kind of take over the production of surfactant or any other protein that may be missing. Cause that's another problem that some of the uh, investigators that are looking into engraftment, are seeing that they're actually not getting really good engraftment, maybe 5 to 10% of the cells that they're putting into a mouse model or a rat model or a pig model, they're actually not engrafting as well. So we have to figure that part out before we can then translate into humans. And But that's definitely the future. I think we're going to be growing organs in a dish. Um, we can actually take out these uh, human umbilical vein um, endothelial cells, which are called Huvex, from the umbilical cord of a baby store them, make any type of organ system in case, you know, that baby develops into a child or an adult with a specific disease process, make that organ system out of their Huvex, and then just give it back to them. And that'll be the future of regenerative medicine. This, this may be like a really crude observation, but, you know, in pigs and mice, et cetera, the, the orientation of the lung is horizontal and in people it's more vertical. Does that make much of a difference in terms of functionality? Like you know, gravity is acting on the bottom of my lung, uh, maybe less so than the middle of my lung or the top of my lung, even though there's maybe alveoli in both spots. But, you know, in a pig, it's horizontal. And again, mouse, and I don't know if the length of their lung is oriented along the body in the same way. And maybe it acts very differently. I don't know. Yeah. So we do know that there are differences. Um, so we have uh, five lobes in our lungs. And there's two on the left side, three on the right side. But in the mouse, they actually have four on the right side and one on the left. So we already know just from like the physical way that the lungs appear that we're very different from a lot of the animal models. And we also have an extensive bronchial system um, with approximately you know, 17 generations of bronchi that are dividing while the mice maybe have half of that. And the mice actually don't have a lot of the uh, different uh, lung cells that humans have. So even though mice have been fantastic in figuring out, you know, lung development and, you know, disease response, 
they're not the most appropriate model for humans. And that's why it's so important to have a human model in a dish. But because the lung is so hard to actually penetrate in a human being, um, like I can't just biopsy any lung I want because it's an actual grueling procedure. Um, we have to, you know, have this model um, of human lung in a dish from um, induced pluripotent stem cells. Well, very good. Um, so, Sandra, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Um, well, they can Google my name. That's probably the best way to find me. Um, I'm at UCSD currently, and um, I'm getting some publications out, not only just in the basic science, but I'm also actually interested in lung physiology and lung mechanics at the bedside as well. So um, I've got a couple papers on that too. But yeah, just Google Sandra Libel. And uh, I'm on Twitter under uh, NICU Dr. Libel. And then I also have a uh, podcast with my husband uh, called Peds on a Pod. And that can be found on SoundCloud. Uh, welcome to send emails if you have any questions and happy to answer any. Okay, that's great. Well, Sandra, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.